And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jeffrey Garrett, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. We want to welcome you to our third episode, and thank you for watching us on YouTube. If you are uh, tuned in, please remember to subscribe. And if you are listening on the go, listening to the podcast version, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. Now, folks, we have another great episode for you today. In our main segment, we're going to dig into a show and tell about a controversial issue that lots of folks across the country are grappling with, that being school choice. What are the equity concerns in a world where there are more school options for parents and students to choose from than ever? What's the impact on school segregation and opportunity? So please join us for that. But for now, we're going to dig into today's Do Now. All right, we're going to jump into today's Do Now, where we take on some of the most fascinating headlines in education. Manuel, how are we going to do today's Do Now? Well, Jeff, actually, today is um, grade reporting day. We got grades, and we're going to do a quick progress check. And the first grade that we have is a D. So you're saying I passed. <laughs> no, Jeff. D for discrimination. Oh. Is discrimination funny to you, Jeff? I, Is it a laughing matter? I take it back. So, I take it back. Proceed. So a new study from Tuppet Yates at UC Riverside and Anna Marcello from Clark University found that children are sensitive to and suffer the impacts from discrimination as young as seven years old. Mm. So research has long shown that their adverse effects of discrimination among teenagers, uh, those effects including substance abuse, uh, depression, risky sexual behavior. But this study breaks down, breaks new ground, showing that kids are aware of these issues at a young age, as young as seven. The yeah. study showed that experiencing racial discrimination predicted increased internalized and externalized behavior problems, including anxiety, depression, and oppositionality. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a fascinating study. When I was reading it, um, what really stood out to me first is I remember the first time I was called the N-word by a kid in my neighborhood, and I was five years old. And I remember when it happened, I remember where it happened, and I remember the impact and the feeling it had on me. So, so this doesn't surprise me, but I haven't thought about that in a long time. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that maybe is kind of... Um, uh, important for us to think about as educators that all of the crazy uh, discrimination and hatred and you know stuff that we're seeing in the world around us that our even our youngest kids are taking this in and developing a sense of racial identity and understanding what this means so uh, it's important that we that we have this in mind and that we take this into account when we're thinking about uh, the emotional um, and the kind of psychological development uh, stage and, and space that our young people are in. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that they're not too young to understand. And, you know, these uh, negative adverse effects um, start really, really, really early, as you pointed out. But there was some good news in the report. The report also found that children who develop a healthy sense of belonging and understanding about one's ethnic racial group, um, that helps buffer some of the negative impacts of discrimination early on. Um, so there's a little bit of hope there. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I agree. I hope so. There's a lot we can do. But the, the question that comes to mind for me is like, are we doing it and are we doing it well enough for all of our students? Right. Exactly. 
All right, Jeff, what's our next grade? All right, next up, we have a B minus. B minus $47 a day, if you're a parent in Manhattan Beach, California, that is, um, and you take your kid out of school to go on vacation. The wealthy Los Angeles area beach community has been asking families to donate $47 each time a student misses a day of school for the past few years, although the policy is really just now gaining some greater media attention. So uh, the big uh, idea to grab here is that in the state of California, Schools are funded on something called average daily attendance. Now, that's different than most states in the union. This, in theory, incentivizes schools to push for higher attendance. But it also means that schools and districts, therefore, lose revenue each time a student is absent. Last year, Manhattan Beach's school's average daily attendance was about 98%, which is astronomically high, um, according to Superintendent Mike Matthews. Still, they reported losing about $1 million at the end of the year as a result of student absences. So just that 2% uh, loss in average daily attendance meant a $1 million in lost revenue. And Manhattan Beach, for those who don't know, is a tiny community, right? This is not a large district. Um, currently, about only about 1% of absences uh, result in parents paying the $47. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, this isn't something that's, uh, you know, doing right. some huge financial drain to the community. Um, and it's certainly not a requirement, but it's an interesting thing for us to talk about. Um, and there are even some other wealthy districts that have experimented with it. So, Manuel, $47 a day, what do you think? Well, um, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Los Angeles area beach communities, uh, Manhattan Beach, the, the median home value is around $2.5 million. Only 2.5? Only 2.5 million, oh, according have, to Zillow. Must have, must have slipped slightly. Yes, yeah, according last to Zillow, time I could checked. be, you know. You know, because I was looking to buy. I'm sure you were, I'm sure you were. <laughs> those big administrator dollars, I'm that's sure. That's right, that's um, right. About. So, um, you know, so this is a community where people are pretty, pretty well off. And it's a, like you said, a really small district, um, just south of 7,000 students. So pretty small. Um, so $47 a day, that's something that I would assume most of those families could afford quite easily for $47 for each day that your student misses, misses school. Um, this definitely isn't a policy that I would want to see in any kind of um, area that serves marginalized populations, low-income populations, because um, that, sh that would just be ridiculous. But as far as Manhattan Beach is concerned, you know, uh, I remember for years and years hearing about school funding and learning about school funding and in a lot of areas in the nation that funding is tied to property values and property taxes. And in California, however, Manhattan Beach, even though it is a very uh, upscale and high value area, um, the amount of money that it receives from the state per pupil is a little bit less than the state average because the state, in Cal at least in California, um, gives uh, a little additional funding to schools that have higher populations of foster youth and, and other uh, communities that require a little more support and attention. Uh, so Manhattan Beach to, to need $47 from their parents to, to, fit, to fulfill this $1 million shortfall, um, you know, there, there might be something there. They might not be getting as much money as one would assume However, I would also assume that their PTSA and their boosters are bringing in much, <laughs> much dollars from Buku bucks, Buku bucks, as they say, <laughs> from the families around there. So, yeah. I mean, I would be shocked to hear that Manhattan Beach at that any school is particularly um, negatively impacted by, you know, having only 98 percent attendance rate.
Yeah. Uh, for me, this actually surfaces a really important issue, which is uh, this idea of funding schools based on average daily attendance. Um, I get the sort of like perhaps libertarian perspective mm -hmm. on it. Like, let's put the incentives in the right place so that, you know, schools have an incentive to encourage attendance and then they'll maximize their funding. Uh, you know, I guess on some level, maybe that makes sense. But I, I have to say, I think it's highly problematic and it's highly problematic uh, that manifests itself most in our high need communities, right? right? Where we know kids have, you know, asthma and miss school more often or have, um, you know, mobility, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, their mom is now in a domestic violence shelter and got moved across the city and right. it takes a couple of days to sort it all out before they can get re-enrolled in a school. And the idea that schools are losing dollars uh, because students who are struggling um, and, and are missing school is crazy because the services that those students need, hiring counselors, hiring teachers, um, you know, the uh, special ed teaching staff that needs to um, take care of IEPs and those sorts of things. You don't need fewer of those people because a kid misses 10 days yeah. of school a year. You still need the same amount of resources, uh, you know, each day uh, to provide those services. So do we want to incentivize and encourage schools to uh, to really push high attendance? Of course. But we're penalizing schools and penalizing students when we have a formula, in my view, at least um, based on average daily attendance uh, rather than based on just, you know, enrollment. Right. Um, total right. enrollment. So I get that it's complicated, but I think this really uh, in, in a funny way mm -hmm. surfaces that this is an issue we might want to think about changing. Equity issues that may perhaps be um, rooted in a close analysis of Manhattan Beach, of all places. <laughs> um, rare. That's rare. Right. Manhattan but... Beach to the rescue. Exactly. Yes. Okay, Manuel, uh, last grade on our report card today. What do we got? All right, Jeff, our last grade is an F. Mm. It's a big, fat F. Wow. I don't know if that there's such a thing as a small, tiny F, but... Big fat F as far as F's go. <laughs> and this goes out to the um, LA, Los Angeles Unified School District's um, policing force. So a recent report out of the UCLA Million Dollar Hoods Project studied the LAUSD school police interactions with students on school campuses and found some troubling trends. It revealed that despite some progress over the last few years, there remains a disproportionately high number of arrests and citations of African-American students. Black kids make up 9% of the district's student body, but 25% of all arrests by school police. Mm. Now, the LAUSD school police is the largest department of its kind in the, in the nation, actually, and they are armed police officers, unlike in other cities like New York City where the uh, school police aren't armed. The LA Unified Police are armed. And between 2014 and 2017, school police in LAUSD made 3,389 arrests issued over 2,700 citations, and implemented over 1,200 diversions. Jeff, I'm giving them a big fat F. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I get it. Um, I understand that great. You know, as, as someone who's experienced uh, the work of, of LAUSD school police and, and seen, you know, just recently in the event of like a potential threat of large scale, like racial violence, black, mm -hmm. brown, black, brown violence taking place at a number of schools in a particular uh, community within LAUSD. You know, I understand that uh, they do have uh, a useful and important function to play when there's a threat of violence or that sort of thing. So 
So I might be generous and give them an incomplete just because the numbers are getting better over the last few years. There are an increasing number of diversions and a decreasing number of arrests. So I got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, on the other hand, black students are still more than twice uh, as likely to be arrested on a school campus as their white, uh, Asian and Latino peers in our, in our uh, you know, in LAUSD. So this is a huge problem, right? Like it just is. Uh, most of what happens at schools is not really criminal stuff, right? Like we're talking about, you know, angry outbursts or escalations of behavior that in suburban contexts get treated as what they are. Behavior problems from an upset kid who needs to be talked down and counseled and taught, right? And so the idea that we're seeing, uh, you know, a direct school to prison pipeline play out um, as a result of having, you know, these sort of real police on campus is, is troubling. And, you know, I spent most of my career in New York City, um, mm. not here in LA. I've only been here uh, just over four years. And the school safety officers who are a division of the New York City Police Department, but are unarmed. Um, and frankly, they're mostly made up of like, you know, middle-aged women, right? Oh, really? um, as opposed to like these young, big dudes who right. are looking to, you know, pick a conflict with kids, right? right. Um, just has a different tone. And uh, I, I think it's problematic. I'm happy to see the progress, but I also think we have a ways to go um, to get away from the sort of law enforcement as intervention and in student behavior set of practices that that is taking place here. Yeah, I mean, I would say a really long ways. You mentioned school to prison pipeline, and you know, a few years ago that was perhaps a controversial term for for a lot of folks. But now it's 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 pretty common because there's so much data that's basically irrefutable about how schools, um, in a lot of ways, precondition students, especially young men of color, for the criminal justice system. And to hear that only nine percent of LEOSD um, students are black, yet 25% of the interactions are with black students. You know, school is supposed to be a welcoming environment for all, for all. And if I'm a LAUSD student um, who's a young black male, and I, it, I've seen with my own eyes that one out of every four kids that have a run-in with police at school are black, you know, that's, that's not a welcoming environment for me at all. And I understand that progress is being made, but it's, it's 2018, damn near 2019. Um, I would like for that progress to come faster than it's coming. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that. <laughs> All right. So that's it for today's grade report. Um, see, we had an F, we had a, well, an incomplete, we had a B, and we had a D. Uh, it was a B minus. B minus oh, B. $47. <laughs> <laughs> All right, not so bad. We'll, we'll focus on that. Then. All right, folks, now it's time for today's show and tell. And Jeff is here with a message about school choice. Jeff, what did you bring to show us today? All right, for today's show and tell, I brought in this photo for you. It's my fourth grade class picture from way back in the 80s. George Bush, and that's Daddy Bush, had just been elected president. The internet didn't exist yet. And as you can see, my dad was still cutting my hair at home. But I want you to take a good look at this photo with me. Notice anything? Well, if you haven't caught it yet, there are seven students of color in this photo out of a class of 25 in a district that on the whole had about 60% students of color when I was growing up. Our school and our class was less than 30% students of color. You might wonder, what's up with that, Jeff? 
Well, there's an interesting story here and one that I think speaks volumes about some of the core issues we are grappling with in education today. In kindergarten, I attended a neighborhood elementary school. When I arrived, I could read already. I knew all my basic numbers, shapes, and colors, and I was ready to learn. I was also a hyper kid. I couldn't hold still for more than a few seconds at a time, and I liked running around and physical play. This did not go over well with my teacher. While she tried to get everyone to lay down for nap time, I was squirming and touching things. I was bored with the easy task in our workbooks, and I'm sure I was a distraction to the teacher's lesson. This caused me to get into pretty frequent trouble. I was put in timeouts, and I was told by the teacher that I was going to wind up in special ed, and that I was going to have to ride the short bus with those kids. Thankfully, I had two parents who could advocate for me. They recognized that my potential and had me tested for a relatively new citywide gifted and talented magnet program at James J. Hill Elementary. There was a test to get in and I qualified. At Hill, my experience as a learner would be completely different. Classes were challenging, the culture of learning and high expectations from the teachers were palpable. And the other students embodied this culture as well. Learning was fun, but serious. It was assumed that everyone would graduate from high school, and as far as I can remember at least, that it was equally assumed that all of us were on our way to college. I attended that school from first through eighth grades, and I will tell you that pound for pound, I believe that it is the best school I've attended. And I've been fortunate to attend some of the very best schools in America. I did my undergraduate work at Dartmouth College, and I got my master's where I met Dr. Rustin here at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. But I'm pretty certain that my academic success and my achievements in school were driven more by my time at Hill than by any school I've attended since then. So back to that class photo I brought in for this show and tell. Why so few students of color in that picture? Well, my school was an early example of the school choice model being implemented in many districts around the country today. The school was open to any family in the city. All you had to do was pass the test. And you just needed to know enough English to sign your kid up and probably had to have a lot of confidence to navigate the bureaucracy. And then you just had to pass this limited racially biased test. And lo and behold, when that system plays itself out, you wind up with a disproportionately white and disproportionately affluent school. Today, the particulars are different. There are way more options for school choice, and many of them do not require testing for entry. There are charter schools involved, which create new opportunities and new barriers as well. But the fundamental problem remains the same. We have pockets of excellence in our school system, including great schools and districts that are impacting students in very positive ways. And we have schools and districts with higher concentrations of students and families in need and insufficient resources to meet those needs. And our system of school choice, by most accounts, is perpetuating the problem. Charter schools, often touted as the silver bullet in education, are making racial and economic segregation worse. 
And even the school choice efforts in public schools like expanding magnet programs, dual language, and STEAM programs are not interrupting the trend towards increasing segregation. So what do we do? In my mind, it boils down to this basic idea. Every student in American public schools deserves to have access to the kind of great public school education that I got. It shouldn't depend on having savvy parents or luck of the draw or a lottery or the benevolence of wealthy people or white people. It should be baked into the system. I know that many of my peers who, went to high, who I went to high school with, who had different elementary and middle school experiences, were not as well positioned to succeed in high school as I was, let alone to do so in the rigorous AP and IB courses that our school offered. Heck, the eight black kids in my grade, yes, I can count them from memory, and I'm pretty sure there were eight of us, wound up being some of the only black faces I saw in those advanced classes that I took in high school. And this, frankly, is a tragedy. If we are to challenge the status quo, we need a two-pronged approach. We must take on the issues of segregation within and across districts that reinforce inequitable outcomes in our schools. We must also challenge ourselves as educators to do right by students in our segregated schools as they, as they exist now, because they're not going anywhere, at least not right away. We, let, we have six hours in class a day with our students, and we can do a hell of a lot with that time. But educators also need help. We've seen the results of concentrating privilege and need in our schools for decades. We know what it does. And hey, for the lucky, like me, it can do great things. But if we value equality of opportunity in this country, we can't stand for a system that relies on luck and privilege to determine outcomes for our kids. And that's my show and tell for today. All right, Jeff, you're always hitting us with these controversial topics, man. And there's a lot of people out there watching this or listening to this in the podcast who are either big time proponents of school choice or have um, an opinion about school choice that essentially grinds their gears. Um, and I think rightly you pointed out that there uh, is a lot of benefits to school choice, but there's also a lot of barriers created by it. So um, one thing that people need to know, and I, I hope most educators know this, but, but maybe not, is that schools today are more segregated than they were at the time of Brown versus Board, which is 1954. And study after study shows this. So one study at a Brown University called the Geography of Inequality um, shows that the schools now are not only more segregated than they were at the time of Brown versus Board, but that segregation also comes with a truly unequal educational experience to where black, Hispanic, and uh, Native American students are more likely to be at schools with severe poverty and lower test scores than uh, students in you know, the school. So it's not just the, the, there's segregation like you pointed out, but it's also the difference in quality of education that people are getting. So like you correctly pointed out, the quality of education that you got at Hill was pro you know, very different than the quality of education somebody in um, some other school that has more uh, black and brown students was getting at the time. So it's, it's, it's not just the segregation that's the problem, it's the quality that's coming behind it. And the segregation is largely rooted in residential patterns, but um, in the case that you just pointed out, your district had predominantly students of color and this school within the district did not. So it's not just a matter of neighborhoods are segregated, so therefore schools are segregated. I teach in a city that the city itself is, is highly segregated, but there are, are schools within it that because we have open choice, the school itself has plenty of uh, a school 
not the school I work at, but there are schools that have uh, diversity of students from, from all kinds of different backgrounds, but then you look at their AP courses and that diversity disappears. And um, one, of the, um, one of the people that I really look up to in the realm of education is uh, Nate Bowling, who's a former uh, Washington State Teacher of the Year. And he, he often uh, sends the message that if your AP courses do not reflect the diversity of your school, then there's a problem. There's an inequity there and it's a um, system that needs to be um, interrogated um, heavily. So I know there are people out there who say, well, you know, it's not a matter of schools discriminating. It's not a matter of schools being racist. It's just that white students perform better and those students of color, they just don't make it into the magnet, um, magnet program. So I like that you pointed out the all that it takes to qualify for a program like the one that you're in. It wasn't just um, your academic potential. It was, it was far from that. It was being able, being able to navigate the system, uh, being able to do well on this test, which was uh, definitely culturally biased um, and all these other things. But even, you know, as recently as a few years ago, NYU released a study that showed teachers are more likely to recommend white students for GATE than they are to recommend black students, even when those students have the same uh, academic scores and same academic promise and potential. It's just that, that racial bias that's within uh, within teachers mm -hmm. to to look at the white achieving student and think, oh, this kid, this kid's got something. Let me put that referral in and sort of ignore or or not see or not not be aware of the promise in in the black or brown kid. So all these things together create this just truly unequal system. And like you said, every student needs to be able to have that rich experience that you had at Hill. Um, I think about Tupac, my favorite rapper of all time, and he, for uh, a time in his upbringing, was attending Baltimore School for the Arts, which um, was a school that, you know, um, not everyone got to go to. And he, he spoke about how the opportunities he gained at that school, the exposure to all these great artists and poets and writers, um, all this great literature, was night and day from what his friends in the neighborhood were getting at their public school. And he questioned where he would be uh, in terms of his artistic capacity if he wasn't at that elite school. And another rapper that comes to mind is Nas. Nas didn't make it past middle school, yet now Harvard has a fellowship named after him because of because um, his, his lyrical talent and his ability to, to tell the story, tell an American story um, in, in, in such a complex way and an advanced way. So it's like these, these young folks who have so much promise and so much potential and a lot of times it's coming down to, to luck. Like, Tupac was lucky that he got to attend that school. Nas was lucky that he survived at all, not having you know, made it past middle school. And it shouldn't be that way. And we got a question, why can't we as a nation make it to where every student can have that same equal and promising um, and engaging educational experience that, that you had? I mean, is it a yeah. lack of money? I don't, I don't think it's that. Is it a lack of talent? Is America not capable of building such a system? I don't think so. I, I think there are a few things involved. So one is, uh, you know, we love to tout Brown versus Board of Education, mm -hmm. but Brown was essentially undone almost immediately after it was, you know, put into action. So, um, you know, we have seen, uh, you know, at least for the last 30 years, a pretty uh, steadily increasing and, and even now more recently, rapidly increasing rate of resegregation of schools in America. Um, we've seen the Supreme Court essentially uh, undo Brown altogether and say that um, integration across district lines is not something that can be compelled. Mm -hmm. So you had this sort of, you know, chocolate city, vanilla suburbs phenomenon where wealthy folks and white folks carve out a district for themselves. Right. Um, you know, this literally follows the map. You look at Los Angeles, you see, you know, Beverly Hills, you see Santa Monica, you see right. like these little pockets of the city that 
are completely enveloped by the rest of Los Angeles, but are their own municipality, their own school district, right? Um, and we see that taking place across the country, right? right. Um, so a district uh, level set of isolation and, and segregation. Um, we also see within districts, more like my example, um, you know, I remember as a, as a teacher riding the train and, and I would um, take the train from Queens to the Bronx. Mm. And, uh, you know, Queens is a super diverse borough, um, but there would be this army of Asian students, right? Like coming from like Flushing and, you know, a few, a few neighborhoods uh, in Queens that would be riding the train uptown to, you know, East Harlem and the Bronx with me, where there's very few Asian people, right? And, uh, you know, what was that? That was the, the army of students on their way to Bronx Science, one of the most, you know, elite exam schools in the district, right? The, a school that literally just like funnels kids to elite private, uh, private colleges. Um, and you see very few black and Latino students going to that school, right? So there's, there's ways in which this sort of, um, you know, skimming off the top and this, uh, and this segregating influence, whether it's done with intentional uh, discriminatory purpose or whether it's just done because of lack of political courage or, you know, catering to the needs of middle class families or white families or whatever um, that results in increasing stratification, increasing segregation. And frankly, what we know is that whether it's done with malicious racist intent or whether it's done with kind of like procedural um, inadvertent um, intent, that when things are highly segregated, there tends to be a common pattern that plays out, right? The, the spaces and things that get used by white folks mm -hmm. get well cared for and well right. invested in and the spaces and places that get used by people of color and in particular Native American, African American and Latino folks get poor resources and poorly taken care of. And the things that we tend to all use together, our roads, um, our airports, right? Like we tend to at least take pretty good care of those things, right? And so I think we need to think of schools as kind of a public good in the same way, right? We Integration is a good end unto itself because we will do a better job at taking care of all of our schools if everyone uses them. Um, it's a controversial idea. Um, it's very easy for people to get abstract and intellectual about, but then when it's their kid, you know, but behave differently. And I get that. Um, but we do see examples of districts across the country that have taken some courageous steps to to promote um, integration. We talked about um, a community district within New York on the Upper West Side that's doing some right. some really interesting stuff now around integration that um, I hope these things can expand because, uh, you know, integration is a good societal outcome and is going to have impact on other societal outcomes uh, that we want to that we want to fix. So, um, you know how school choice plays into this is something we need we need to examine because currently that system is actually reinforcing the types of segregation or making worse in some cases the type of segregation we see and i think there's reason to believe that the long-term outcome of that is is not a positive one yeah um and i think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned um you know it's easy to, to think about or speak about but then when it's your kid it's a little a little different nicole hannah jones is his uh, written extensively about this idea of you know parents when it comes to being their own kid and, and not wanting to, to contribute to systems of segregation and systems of uh, racist systems um, but you want the best for your kid and you, you don't necessarily want your kid to be at that local black and brown school with 
you know, a rotating door of teachers and, and, and a whole host of problems. But um, that will that it's going to take in order to build a comprehensive system that serves everybody um, is w a, a level of political will that I don't know we have right now. And I don't think um, in my in my view of it, we'll have anytime soon because of that. You know, when it's your kid, it's, it's different. And I, and I get it right. Like my point, and I think the point of advocates for for greater integration and rethinking how school choice works on this front isn't that like everyone should have proportionate representation in our most underfunded, crappiest schools. Mm -hmm. Is that our most underfunded, crappiest schools should not be allowed to exist, and they are allowed to exist because they are serving marginalized populations, right? right? If they were serving wealthy kids in the suburbs, they would have fixed it up, they'd have built nice new facilities, they would have hired, they would have done whatever they needed to do to, to make it better, right? And so we need to force that type of change. Um, and then we also, frankly, have to get real with ourselves about the fact that um, schools don't cure poverty, right? That like when we concentrate poverty, we concentrate trauma, that, um, it's, it's more expensive to do that than it is to have greater integration um, where, you know, kids who are really struggling with certain issues are not all piled in together into a small subset of schools that require astronomical levels of resources to meet the need. Like we need to have some greater diversity, which gets to housing policy, which gets to transportation and a number of other things. But, um, you know, if we want to move the needle on these outcomes, it's not going to just be. Uh, you know, every every uh, you know teacher has to be award-winning Dr. Rustin, right? Like, we we need to have some systemic solutions that support uh, teachers like yourself in doing this work. All right, folks, we know you have a lot of strong opinions about this. I mean, every this is another one of those topics that everybody has some kind of opinion, even if you're a parent listening and you don't work in education, but you have kids and you definitely have a a, a, a process of thinking when it comes to what school is your son or daughter. Um, your child going to attend. So uh, chime in, um, add your comments below. All right, now it's time for Class Dismissed. We want to give a very special shout out to the amazing educators across the nation that are currently being surprised with the Milken Educator Award. The Milken Family Foundation rewards and inspires excellence in the world of education each year by honoring top educators around the country with a $25,000 unrestricted award that has been dubbed the Oscars of Teaching. The Milken Educator Award targets early to mid-career teachers, not just for their current work, but also for the uh, promise ahead in their careers. So a surprise ceremony is held for each of these winners. I received a Milken Educator Award uh, years back and the ceremony, which I thought was for a visit from a, a local politician, was actually a ceremony for me and I was shocked and um, it's a, a life-changing moment. And if you wanna see these surprise mm -hmm. notifications and see the look on these uh, educators' faces when their name gets called out in a ceremony that they did not know had anything to do with them, um, it, it's, it's amazing stuff to watch. So head on over to MilkenEducatorAwards.org to see uh, video and photos of these events. And shout out to every teacher that's currently being nominated. This is a, a, a national tour and these awards will be given out all the way through this coming springtime. So definitely shout out to all of you guys. You're doing amazing work and we definitely look forward to the work ahead for you. Here, here, uh, congrats. Uh, so folks, thanks for joining us today. Uh, make sure you head to our website. That's aotashow.com, aotashow.com. You can find all of our content there. So past episodes, segments from episodes, you can learn about us, you can learn about our crew, 
um, our amazing team of folk, yeah. uh, folks here who produces this show and gets it to you. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to see, yeah. so check it out. That's AOTAshow.com. Also, make sure if you're watching us on YouTube, like and subscribe. We really appreciate the support. Um, and on Facebook, you can find um, all of our content as well. That's Facebook.com slash AOTAshow. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and we'll see you next time.